Hi, Guy here. Hope you're well. Welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. This episode, I speak to Jason Wingard. Jason has had an amazing career. He started out as a professional footballer, then became a stand-up comic, uh, and is now a uh, filmmaker, writer, and director. I caught up with him uh, as he was promoting his latest film, The Comedy Eaten by Lions, which stars Jack Carroll, Antonio Akeel, Johnny Vegas, and loads of others. Uh, it's just been premiered at the Edinburgh Film Festival, also won an award at the London Indian Film Festival. In this interview, you can hear Jason's experiences of being a professional footballer, very young, how he made his first films on a shoestring budget, and why seeing Johnny Vegas perform live made him decide to leave stand-up behind and move into filmmaking. So I feel like I need to ask you first about the vehicle you arrived in. Because you've arrived in an amazing-looking old camper van, is that right? Is yeah, that that's what it right. Is? I've got a, a Mazda Bongo. So yeah, um, in between making films, I go solving crimes around Cholton. <laughs> <laughs> a Mazda Bongo? I've never heard of a Mazda Bongo before. Yeah, yeah. They kind of like the roof opens up, and you know you can get uh, people in there. It's a, it's like a, a, a middle-aged man's party wagon. <laughs> So is that for like family holidays or is, how does that, what do you use it for? Well, actually I use that a lot to film. So kind of like, because you can slide the doors open on the side, you can use it for a lot. It's handy for filming. So kind of like when we went out to Calais to shoot um, the first feature film, we took took that out took mm. that out there with us. But obviously it was bought as a family <laughs> holiday <laughs> vehicle as well. So it's but, a multi-purpose vehicle. Uh, it is. And I've kind of ended up with it, you know, at first I was quite resistant of getting it and now I quite like it you know um I I think it's uh, quite chic (laughs) (laughs) when did you get your hands on that uh we've had it for about three or four years now so yeah but uh but yeah it was it's it's actually my partner Rebecca who, who, who wanted to um to get this you know she was determined to buy one uh, with the idea that we'd go away at weekends and, you know, but that's not really how it's worked out. We go away once every six, seven months in it and, and I use it to film in more often. For like guerrilla filming where you jump out and film yeah, and which, get back well, in. Yeah, it's, well, it's fantastic for that. So, you know, and actually there's about four or five different times in both films that, 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 that we've used it. Mm. So it's proved extremely useful. Yeah, and definitely. Is, so is that something that you've done a lot over the, the films that you've made? Have you done that sort of, you know, pulling up somewhere, jumping out and, and start filming? Well, the first film that we made, which was... I mean, obviously, I come from a short film ba- mm. background and lots of the films that we were making, the very first films that I was ever making was just me and a couple of comedians sat in a car and we'd drive around as if they were taxi drivers. <laughs> And um, that was like in 2000 we did did that. And it, it won like uh, um, at the Corner House in Manchester. They used to have a student film festival called Exposures. And it won Exposures, um, Best Drama and the Audience Award. And so that was kind of one of the first times. So it was kind of like, yeah, we did. I definitely come back from a guerrilla filmmaking background. Mm. The stuff we were doing in Calais, obviously, if you're going into the Calais jungle, you you can't really this is in another life by this the is way, in, another, in another life film, yeah. Yeah. in another life so you kind of like you we you couldn't really do that any other way other than uh, hop out and start filming and actually we didn't have a script when we went out there we just had two actors who and a rough idea about what we were going to do mm. and we'd never been to the jungle before we had no idea what the 
rules were and how whether you could film in there so you know having a van that you could hop in and hop out of was quite handy so what what was that i mean we'll talk a bit about a bit more about how you got into yeah. uh, filmmaking in a minute but yeah <clears throat> what was that experience like of filming in the the calais jungle for that film in another life well it was a great it's i mean it's a re- very very real situation isn't it so you kind of go in and you you're aware that what's going on you know no one really cares about your film mm. i mean the very first thing i said to everybody when we went out was don't do any press the first thing the producer did was do some press <laughs> <laughs> i just thought it was gonna look bad you know if you yeah. if you start to kind of go oh you know look look at us the great things that we're doing for these poor refugees <laughs> uh, you know I, I, I was like well no we don't want to really appear that way so kind of you know um but yeah, it, it was a scary situation. It's very intimidating. If you've, obviously, if you've got people all over the road, I mean, I, I had sympathy for people from all over on that situation because it's a situation where nobody wanted to be there. Nobody wants to be in there. Refugees don't want to be there. People don't want to be living in those circumstances. The truck drivers don't want to have people all over the roads clamoring to get on mm. the van. The police look intimidated. They, you know, so it's a situation where you're going. Uh, you need to sort this out. And I don't think they've really ever solved it. They've just kind of brushed it under the carpet. And so now you don't have people by the roadsides, but you've got, you know, thousands of people living in the woods in and around Calais still trying to get to the UK. Hmm. So the situation's not disappeared. But, I mean, you just had it. And it was a lot of pr- there was a lot of press there at that particular time, you know. So... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a. I'm still trying to reconcile how I, how I feel about the the jungle, but we landed there knowing absolutely nothing at all. But I was watching stuff on TV, and I, there was a disconnect from what I was watching on TV, and I just could see people clamoring on vans, and and it, you know, the way it was positioned and, and reported was that it looked like some kind of invasion and you know and i thought this can't possibly be right mm. you've got to if you want to get to the bottom of it you've got to go and hear from the people that are there you know and it's very complicated isn't it because um <clears throat> you start to make a judgment as to who's worthy and who's not you know mm. and i think that's very very difficult my personal point of view was that you should be hearing asylum claims there in Calais rather than having people risk their lives to get to the UK. Mm. Um, and obviously there's people who get, as soon as they, they land on British soil, they get, you know, their, their um, you know, their, their, what, what they call it, visas. Or kind of, yeah. The, the immigration mean, status. Yeah, the status, you know, yeah. They get their status, you know. So um, I knew several people who, as soon as these they got here the people who heard their cases and went yeah actually this is a genuine case you know so i think it's really tra- quite tragic hmm. you know i'm not saying that everybody's de- deserving as well you know but obviously the logical thing would be to deal with that situation there but immigration has been made a massive political point hasn't it which you hmm. you which uh, was used for all sorts of things, for Brexit and leverage for different things. And you could see it coming, particularly from an, uh, from 2008 with the economic downturn. Hmm. Um, it's a classic, isn't it, to kind of, kind of keep poor people fighting amongst poor people. <laughs> classic yeah, the, magic trick. Yeah. <laughs> Look over here whilst we keep diddling <laughs> things over here. Did you find it uncomfortable then, filming in the jungle, or did you... What, what was that experience like in terms of personally when you were actually making the film? Um, 
it was it you know we landed the first day we the first day we landed there i mean kind of like it was chaos the first day because we drove through uh past the jungle and we could see people all over this the roads and we, you know it was intimidating we're thinking god we've got to go in there tomorrow you know, tomorrow um and we had a bit of an accident one of the kind of drivers had a crash on the way there and there was a bit of chaos getting everybody together and we still didn't know how we were going to do things and we kind of a few people went in the day before and that was intimidating for them they had like tear gas nearly fired at them and because they had cameras on them and so we were aware but they'd made a couple of contacts for us in particular at the church so um we went into the uh, the the church and we found an english speaking ethiopian refugee who kind of gave us a tour of the um of the jungle and um this guy's called mima and he was a he's the first person that we met in the camp and then he was quite savvy he was a journalist mm. and um he'd done like songs of praise when they'd been over there <laughs> right. and but obviously he was this is where he was surviving in the jungle was charging a little bit of money to kind of like yeah i'll help you out but you need to give us a little bit, a bit of cash so mm. i can you know survive and this is the very first person he's in the film features quite prominently in it he since got over to the uk under a train and under a train yeah and he's got a five-year immigration status he's allowed to stay in the uk and he's like i've become a friend of ours now so have you seen him in the uk yeah he came to the you know when we won the biffa he came to the he was on there on the awards night because we joked when we were in the jungle that um we'll, uh, you know i'll see you in london for the premiere right and you'd obviously don't know whether you're going to see that person ever again in your life mm. you know a few months later he, he, he contacts me and by this point we'd built a set on an anti-fracking camp in Warrington. Hmm. And so, um, and he came out and so I was like, well, this is going to mess with people's heads. We've built a fake jungle and we'll be able to have him on our fake jungle as well. <laughs> so, you know, um, and it was obviously incredible. We were delighted that he'd made it to the UK as well. But did, did he tell you the story, by the way, of the... Yeah, oh, yeah, but he told, he told me... I mean, he, he tells a heartbreaking story on camera as well, which, mm. you know, we, we didn't know he was going to do, and it's one of those moments when you're making a film like that that, you know, just a story about his, tr his journey through the Mediterranean and how um, a woman who was travelling with them couldn't swim, and so she gave him her baby. And right. uh, he said that everybody was pulling and, you know, kind of pulling. You know, he's got kind of like post-traumatic stress disorder from from this experience and he couldn't hold on to the baby and the keeps you know he's trying to save himself and well people are all pulling on to him and you know it's a real but it's a on, and this is all on on camera it's a it's a, a, a truly horrific story and mm. very very real you know and he told this story and we didn't know and everybody was kind of just stunned on set and this is part of the film as well now. Mm. Um, and part of the reason why this film I think is quite powerful and we're quite proud of it is mm. that, you know, of what it's trying to communicate to people is that, you know, uh, this is a very human situation and the moment you stop treating people as human beings you know it's kind of like a mandate for murder isn't it you know or you know a mandate to turn your back and i think that's something that we'll look back on with great shame um that we didn't do more for people hmm. yeah. and then the rest just to finish on that the rest of that experience then in, in the jungle itself did that 
you said it was intimidating at first. Did it remain yeah. that way or did it get easier? No, it's it's, di- it's difficult, isn't it? Because you can, things can come from uh, left field in the jungle. So, you know, not everybody. You, you walk into the jungle, it's like going into anywhere. So if you've been to any kind of festival, <laughs> it's kind of like a intimidating festival. <laughs> <laughs> so an intimidating Glastonbury, you know. So you, the things can come from left field. So you have to be on your toes. I always found that if you still stayed in one area for too long, you're going to attract some uh, unwanted attention. Mm. And not everybody there is going to be friendly. Not everybody wants to be on camera yeah. and at the time there was cameras everywhere i mean i think the banks he did like a, a you know a, a mickey take of mm. the amount of cameras there and how little was actually being done for yeah. changing and the refugees were feeling that as well and of course they were aware of how they were being portrayed in the press in the uk if you got <coughs> the prime minister calling you vermin or you know or, or you know commentators saying that you're rats hmm. trying to trying to jump on the ship you kind of going well you know people are aware of that and so it made it really difficult but most i treat it like anywhere if you're going to go in to do a documentary in manchester in let's say you're going to salford you wouldn't just pick your camera out and start shooting hmm. you'd go and ask people first and you'd be yeah. wise to yeah <laughs> yeah you'd be very wise to wouldn't you? <laughs> you know so that's exactly the same thing you know you just kind of make sure speak to people first of all let's blame what you're trying to do and why you try to do it and see you know hmm. a, you, you kind of like no matter where you go in the world you meet different kinds of people i mean when i talk about the jungle i always say look if you took nine thousand mancunians randomly and stuck them in manchester in in a in a camp yeah mainly men you're gonna have your fair share of wrongos <laughs> yeah the law of averages tells you there'll be uh... you know but you kind of go well look you know but it'll only be a small percentage yeah. you're talking about seven eight percent but that's enough you know mm. what i mean you know kind of like enough that you kind of make this uh, an intimidating and dodgy environment mm. so you met different people but what i did what i realized about the jungle was that you know there's 20 different nations say and they all lived in different parts of the camp so you'd have an eritrean section you'd have a sudanese section you'd have you know say a a, a syrian section Mm. and to understand what's going on in the jungle you've got to understand what's going on in those individual countries as well yeah you know which is obviously too lazy if you're right wing. You can just go brown person, (laughs) (laughs) jumping on a van, vermin, you know. I think that you have to understand individual situations, and that's what this kind of film was about, was trying to... I can give you an example of that. For example, there's the the Sudanese guy who came over, who was a gay guy, you know. He's telling me that, you know, if you're gay in the Sudan, you get hung from a tree, you know what I mean? It's like, well, they... um, that's probably enough reason for you want to want to leave that country, isn't yeah. it? You know, so um, you know we didn't put that we didn't put that particular story in there, but it's something that you start to consider, you know. So it it didn't necessarily change. There was things that could come out of left field, but mainly the the hostilities that you found weren't necessarily from the refugees. It was from the police, right? Who were completely on edge. And you can see that they, I mean, I try to kind of emp- have an empathy with them. I was thinking, well, okay, all right, you've got all your tools and you've, you've got the kit on and you, there's seven or eight of you, but there's a thousand people facing you down there, you know. And that's intimidating for them on a daily basis, mm. you know, as well. I know they've got tear gas and all sorts of things <laughs> yeah. and backup and blah, blah, but it's still intimidating. And they don't want to be there, you know, no. <laughs> they don't want to be there. And then the traffickers, they don't want you there either. 
So at one point, the traffickers drove their car at us and hit one of the main cast members who he became. He, he wasn't a cast member at the time. He was just a translator, our mm. Arabic translator. And he jumped out the way and this car hit him on the wing mirror, hit him on the, the hip. Right. You know, uh, so we got a warning when we were in there from, from traffickers. Uh, and it was the kind of thing that you just let go because... It, you know, we got away with it. Mm. Nobody got hurt. We knew that we were going into an environment which could potentially be dangerous, and it and it was, you know. Um, but there was the only way to get that footage was to go in there. And yeah, just finding that. Do you feel like you captured that sort of you know volatility or that that atmosphere in the film? We did get some. You know, I mean, it's I suppose it's for people to to judge. It's a shame that but you know that it that we were still working on trying to get a, a wider release for it, but. Mm. It could, because it serves as a historical document as a, as much as anything else. I know there was lots of documentaries, but there was no real feature films in there. And so you got we got some. Sometimes we got close enough. Sometimes I feel like we could have been braver and could have got more. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, you know, it it was by the end of it, I knew what I wanted to say, you know, and the, what I wanted to say was really quite simple, you know, mm. this is people, you know, yeah. that's it. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back then a bit then to the start of filmmaking for you then. So when mm. did you really start first, first start becoming interested in filmmaking? Were you like a big film buff at school or when mm. did you really start to get the idea that you wanted to do this? No, well, I was actually, I, 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 I suppose, I don't know what did I, well, at first I was a footballer. Right. When I was left school. So kind of, I, I went to, I joined Man City, um, you know, in a galaxy far, far away. So what, what year, how old were you then when you, were you, did you join that, the academy? Yeah, you? no, yeah, I, I, I joined 16. My, my old, um, I, I used to play for Flixton Juniors and mm. I got picked up at 15 years old. One of the scouts from Flixton Juniors went to Manchester City. His name was Terry Farrell, and he brought me with him to. And I went on trial to City, and and I got I got got a contract. I got offered a contract. I had a good good trial. Was that like a YTS contract? In yeah, those it was a YTS days? scheme. Yeah. yeah. So kind of like, and so I was there with some quite you know, we had quite a good team. We had Neil Lennon was playing for us. Right. Jerry Taggart. Yeah. Uh, Ashley Ward played up front. Right. Uh, with Mike Sharon and me and uh, Michael Hughes, um, so yeah, kind of like we had a decent side and we we got to the Youth Cup final. What was your position, by the way? I played up front. Hmm. Yeah, so would that uh, be uh, you and Ashley Ward up front then? Yeah, it was me and Ashley Ward. Yeah, and so kind of like, um, but I, you know. <laughs> Someone said, "What kind of forward were you?" I said, "I was one of those forwards with no defining attributes that were going to make you into a pro player." Right. So I had an average pace, an average shot, and you know, <laughs> so I had a, a six on everything. You must have had enough no, about I, you, you know, though, I, you? There was, certain, you know, I, got, I, you know, I could score, I could score goals, and you know, I, it's like a lot of things that I kind of tried my hand at. I understood to a certain level how you could do them, you know. Hmm. Um, so, and, and, and then, you know, so it's kind of like so lots of things I just tried my hand at. And, and what uh, other things do you mean? Well, I can't, I started doing stand up comedy after that. So, kind of, like, so I played in football for two years. I went to Rochdale and played in the American League. Mm. I played in the indoor soccer league. Who did you play for there? I played for Wichita Wings. Right. So, I kind of, like, I left school. I, mean, I remember leaving. This was kind of like. A, I was advised not to go to America because they um, they don't 
they only take each team can only take one European player per year and the European contracts you would normally go mm. to but I ignored all the advice and went and um, that's, this was the, the indoor league at the time it was called the MISL which is the what major made you want to go to America though, rather than say pursue the career with you know English teams say Rochdale were you at Rochdale at the time yeah or? I was at Rochdale I was, so I was at Rochdale and um, I'd finished playing for Rochdale and all my mates then like 19 20 years old and we're kind of like talking a big rave culture at that time everyone's going out to the Hacienda and I'm starting to get tempted to go and join them and whatever else and mm. Um, so this would be the early 90s now uh, is it? This is kind right, of like 80s, 88, 89 Right, okay About 89 And um, I had, didn't have a great time at Rochdale I kind of had a big fallout with one of the the, the coaches there And when you get isolated in a, in a football club You kind of like, you know It's a bit of a miserable time So the last three or four months were, you know Were pretty difficult and I knew that they weren't going to keep me on. So right, they kind okay. of like, so I was weighing up what I was going to do next. And it looked like, you know, either I was playing non-league here, but I knew that the World Cup was going to America. So I was, you know, I thought, okay, the, what, wouldn't it be good to go to America? And, and surely things are going to pick up there, yeah. you know, in the next few years. So that was, you know, I probably missed it by about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> Mistimed it by about 15, 20 years. But the idea, the idea was, was right. Yeah. The idea was right. So kind of, I went out and there, it was like um, me and this other kid, we were meant to go over and we decided that we'd do three months um, working on coaching kids football. Yeah. So I got my preliminary coaching award and uh, I knew that was my kind of passport to go to America and get employment for three months. So I went over. I didn't, I think well, we bought one-way flights for 99 quid to New York. <laughs> and I had a J-1 visa, which was like a three-month working visa and nothing more than that. And I kind of went out and I met one of the coaches, luckily, from this football indoor football team who invited me down for a trial. And there was two teams having trials at the time and uh, one of them was open trial and that was for kansas city so i went down to kansas city but i knew that they had a young kid canadian kid called paul peshashlido oh yeah who was coming and um he was gonna get that they they would they fancied this you know yeah. i knew that he went on to play in the premier league didn't he? yeah he's married to karen brady that's right yeah so kind of like um so uh so Karen, if you're listening, you could have got me. <laughs> and then um, the witch, I went to Wichita instead, which is kind of like three hours south um, in the same state. But they had a second team there, a the smaller, smaller team. And I went on trial there. And uh, I, I, I did well, I, you know, I did well and got a contract. So mm. I got the contract and that was it, you know, job done. I got a, a year at, at playing for in the indoor league. Was that 11 aside then? Indoor? No, it's six aside. Six, okay. Six aside. So kind of like a lot of people were kind of over there at the time. There was lots of old pros were playing there. Mickey Thomas had just left. Right. He uh, quite, had quite a reputation in the, yep. in the town, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I bet he did. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, there was quite a few people who'd you know been over and played and in, in there. So there's lots of English old, old pros playing there. And it's quite a physical game as well. The six aside stuff, even though you know there's only trainers in there. And I got to take, um, taken under the wing by this uh, old um, 
Cockney player called Terry Rowe who used to play for Brentford. Uh, who was a nice, nice lad. And they kind of looked after me because I was 19 years old, you know, mm. and just had absolutely no idea. And I arrived in America with, no, you know, no money to get my connecting flight. I had to reverse the charges to this company I was working with to get them to fly me out. Right. And I just kind of look back now and I think, God, you know, I left home and you know this it's the kind of thing that if if you knew all of the pitfalls ahead you would never take them on but now you know but you, i was 19 i just kind of went out and just did it and up to that point had it just been all about football for you was that what you were really really interested in and that's what you loved yeah that was it and then kind of like i started coaching after that i started i played non-league for a little bit i played from mosley but you know by that point i started going out with my mates around here you know when i came back from america this is how long were you in america for them i was in america for a year and it was a good year as well really a lot of fun mm. and um um but i just I, I, there was something that in me that i realized i wasn't really a, i didn't feel like a footballer why not I, I don't know there was kind of like a slightly different mentality um to how those footballers are they're very uniform. They're very similar per personalities, I found. There wasn't a massive variation. Mm. It's almost, I likened it to being in the army, being, you know, that's how I imagined it was going to be. You know, you mm. kind of like, so if you, you know, I, I didn't really feel like, I, I, I didn't re really ever feel like I, f I fit into that kind of category. I had my own ways of doing things and that kind of makes you a target <laughs> within those big I imagine I remember there's something that kind of can give you an example of this because I remember mm. having a massive debate you know and I would d debate things with people and so you've got lots of Irish players at Manchester City and we were debating religion and I'm an atheist or kind of like someone who's kind of not questions lots mm. of different things about religion and so um they were having a massive, massive... And I think, I remember at the time, the Shroud of Turin was um, being, you know, examined whether yes. it was real or not, you know. Right. And it came out that it was... It, that, that that particular thing was a fake, you know. But I remember the, the arguments we had. I mean, I had all these Irish players screaming at me. Really? <laughs> yeah. You know, but, and you know, they've, they've obviously had their own upbringing, haven't they? You know, mm. kind of like where religion was a massive thing to them, you know. To me, I was in secular Cholton, you know. Yeah. What did your parents think, by the way, when you, or your family, when you went to America, you know, with basically your one-way ticket and not much else? I don't think they kind of really... I remember saying, coming in and see, seeing them and saying, right, I see, you know, I'm off then, and they were like, you know, well, I'll see you, you know. And it was weird because I remember at the time because, you know, we were quite a working-class family, when I arrived there, it wasn't like I could call, you know, most of the time you couldn't call your parents and get them to, you know, I don't even think any of them had credit cards or anything mm. like that, you know. So I would have been completely isolated. Mm. But there was an hour when I stood at Newark Airport just wandering around, just thinking, what am I going to do? <laughs> I've got no money. I'm, I've landed in America. I've just got a promise of a job, some, and it's, um, you know in the middle of the United States and what? I haven't got enough money for a connecting flight. I think I had a hundred dollars thinking that that was going to get me a flyer. So what did you do that first night you were there? I just, I just reversed the charges. I was kind of like, you know, I was smart enough to know that, you know, 
I went, I'd seen movies. <laughs> I made a collect call. <laughs> <laughs> I'd seen movies. I made a collect call overseas, yeah, <laughs> to kind of like... Um, and you said to them, look, I need to get to where you are. Can you sort Yeah, I just phoned up, phoned up. I said, can you, can you fly us out? And I'll work off the, the money. And they right. did. Right. And then they, they, I think they'd sussed out. Because at that, that time, I, I was, I'd never coached anyone. Right. And I was given, like, 20, 30 kids to coach for six hours. <laughs> you know, and my training wasn't designed for, for looking at... So essentially, it's like babysitting, isn't yeah. it? And keeping kids entertained. Yeah. All my stuff is used to having, you know, middle-aged men scream at me and boot balls at me <laughs> all the time. Smashing shots as hard yeah, as exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's That was my trick. <laughs> so, I, but I'd learned quickly, you know, a few different techniques of kind of keeping and attain children. And, and it was actually, I found it quite hard, you know, because mm. we, we'd gone from those days, I, I probably only used to train, you trained for two or three hours and you were off, you know, so it was one in the afternoon, you finished training, hadn't you? Unless you're doing double sessions and even then you're finishing at three, three mm. thirty. Um, so a footballer's life's easy. Don't let any, any footballers <laughs> tell you that they have it difficult. They don't. <laughs> um, and so going to, from that, and I was doing two, three hour coaching sessions. So I was like, you know, that was, ty- that was more tiring than playing football at the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. A different, a different world. Yeah. You take me back now. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned your family then and, and yeah. you know, your sort of background. Where was it you grew up then and what did your mum and dad do? What, what, what well, my dad was a, a lift engineer. He, um, he worked for Direct Works, not far from here, actually, um, in Withington, they kind of had a base there. And he used to go and fix all of the lifts around uh, Salford and various other places. And, you know, mm. he's got lots of good stories. I remember <laughs> as a kid actually being taken out with him and seeing being on top of massive roofs and, you know. And then... Um, there's a kind of like my mum, my mum worked at um, Kendall's, so kind of like she was just a, she worked for Clinique. So yeah, in the big department store. Yeah, in the big department store, yeah. So kind of, and then we grew, grew up in Chalton, mm-hmm. and it was nice, we had a really nice, uh, you know, upbringing really. There's three, I have a brother and sister, and kind of like, yeah, we just grew, grew up, but I was Chalton, I'm Chalton born and bred really. Mm-hmm. So I bump into people all the time from Chalton, yeah. and all Chalton as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that people see Cholton now and think it was all leafy, but it wasn't always that way. No, no. It certainly right. got its, uh, you know, tougher elements. Yeah. Yeah, but they're hidden away. But <laughs> I bump into those guys all the time, you know, and see them around Cholton. And were they, were your family interested in film at that point? Is that something that was on the radar at all then? No, I mean, I kind of like, that. no one in our family, I think I was the first person in the family to go to the university. Um, and... No, no one, nobody in our family was ever really interested in that stuff. But my dad was kind of like, he was kind of quite an artistic kind of person because he was a musician. He was a jazz musician. Okay. He played the saxophone. He used to play around Band on the Wall. And he's kind of like, in like, you know, all these uh, jazz books, archive books. He's kind of like, well, quite a well known saxophonist, you know, from around this area, area in the 60s. Um, and so he always was, in particular, quite encouraging in the way... He was always quite open-minded, just his attitude toward, towards everything. Um, he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and was kind of like, well, go and, you know, try it, whatever it is. Mm. You know, I think my brother used to come home and do all sorts of stuff, and he'd be like, well, you know, 
you got to find out for yourself, you know. Yeah. That acid isn't a good thing. <laughs> so you think you, that, that was a positive thing for you, that your dad was just encouraging you to... I think so. ...sort of quietly just to, to try different stuff and see Well, you, you can't think. live your life, you know, through other people, can you? And I no. think it's something that you learn as you become a parent. You go, well, the people, you're going to make your own decisions. And you can guide people. And mm. you can say, look, I don't think this is a good thing. <laughs> but, you know, you're going to have to find out. Mm. Uh, you, you know, at some point you hand over your children to other people, don't you? And they start to find out things for themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think you just got to... So the, 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 there, was a, there was a compass for certain, but he was always kind of like, yeah, go and try things, you know? Why not try it? Try and, try and do things. So he was encouraging. And I think that that background in music kind mm. of probably... Gave him that, you know. Yeah. And so when you came back from America then, was that, were you then going out to, with your friends to the Hacienda and stuff like that, or was that... Yeah, well, I mean, before that, really. You know, so um, I used to go out with a actress um, called Jane Ashbourne from around here, and her sister is Lorraine Ashbourne, who's uh, married to Andy Serkis. Okay, yeah. So, uh, and they were kind of, at the time, both up-and-coming actresses, you know. And we used to go out all the time to the Hacienda. So kind of, I spent like two years, probably too much time of my apprenticeship at Man City. Yeah, I was going to say, this is when you were still a footballer. Yeah, I was still a footballer. So I was in there kind of like, you know, as soon as I'd finished and probably in the night games on a Wednesday night, I'd go down to the Hacienda. But um, all the other players would go to Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> They were all like, you know, you're going to that gay club, the Hacienda. <laughs> I'm like, that's not, that's not a gay club, you know. But um, uh, I'm it, guessing though that the two things didn't really go too well together. No, it to was the weird. They were, they were, that's the kind of thing they were. They had a real attitude of like, no, you're doing things differently. Hmm. Look at you putting grolsch tops in your shoes. <laughs> Who do you think you are? Was that in the laces that you used to put them in? Yeah, the you put them in your laces, yeah. I remember, you kinda, yeah. I remember that. But, you know, um, so, yeah, they thought it was all freaky down at Hacienda. <laughs> it was all weirdos down at Hacienda, yeah. Yeah, and I'm guessing late nights didn't really help for football either. No, probably not, because, you know, you had your early starts, didn't you? But, you know, we probably weren't drinking that much, you no. know. It was only, you know, it wasn't a massive drinker. I wasn't smoking, anyway, so, and you were still fit, you know. So you just have to get up and train, wouldn't you, the next day. It's probably no different than they do now, hmm. you know. Yeah. So were you academic at all at school? No, not really. I kind of like, I left school with kind of probably, you know, little or to no qualifications. I was kind of like in all of the top sets, but there was massive strikes, I remember, at school. For when I was there, kind of like, it was the last year of this, we were doing like 16 plus, which was that hybrid. It was a kind of like between O-levels and GCSE and CSEs. Mm. And they've amalgamated it now, don't they, and call it the GCSE. But That's we, right. the first year of a 16 plus, which would, then became GCSEs, you know. Um, but I remember kind of like I failed pretty much every everything, apart from drama. Right. Um, <laughs> so, and then I, I went back and, and got everything again a couple of years later. When I finished playing football, I went, that's the first thing I did. I thought, oh, well, I'll go back and, and, and go and study and get... Uh, so I got O-levels and then A-levels pretty quickly. Um, 
That was while you were at City still, was it? No, that was back after I'd come back from America. Oh, that right, was okay. episode 19, come back from America, and, and then I went and you realise, don't you? You go, well, okay, you're going to have to go and get a job. And jobs for people with no qualifications are thinner on the ground, mm. or were at the time, you know. You mentioned you did past drama, though. Was that... What were, you, what were you involved in then in the first time round? What were you involved in a play or? Yeah, I was doing I was doing stuff at school. You know, I was always really interested. I, I really I think I started to have a real interest at that time in in comedians. Right. I, know, I started really and I did eventually start doing stand up. So, yeah. um, uh, I think at that time I was starting to really I start, really loved Woody Allen films and. Um, and I was starting to, you know, I was really into the young ones and various things like mm. that and stuff that we, we were terming alternative comedy, yeah. you know. And you start to hook onto things, don't you, as a young young man or a teenager um, that you feel helps you identify yourself. You know, you're looking back and you go, it didn't <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, but that's not how you do it. But you kind yeah. of like, it, at the time it feels, doesn't it, you know. So all that alternative comedy scene I thought was really cool okay. at the time. So you were into that at school? Yeah, I was into that at school, yeah. And kind of like, you know, I wanted to try and be funny and whatever mm. else. I, you know, we try, I tried. I wasn't very funny. <laughs> I got so far with it. <laughs> But what uh, made you think? What, what do you think made you pass drama then that year when you didn't? You said you didn't do well in much else. I think I was just interested in it. I think that that's the key, isn't it, to mm. anything that you do? If you're interested in it and you want to do it, then you, that's what you do. I mean, I think that that kind of like Ken Robinson talks about those kind of things now, and I'm a massive believer in it because, you know, people get made to feel that they're failures, don't they? You can't do this. You can do that. You know, but stop focusing on what people can't do and focus mm. on what they like doing and what they can do. Yeah, you know. There's loads of people who will talk about that, and that's why I'm kind of a massive fan of any kind of philosopher who talks like that, like Alan Watts or somebody who talks about, you know, just engage what kind of person you, you are and what kind of, you know, what kind of things you would like to, to do. And I think that kind of like, rather than have this workhorse mentality towards work and, you know, people driving for us, you know, a slave for a wage which I think is very unsatisfying. You just end up with lots of people who are <laughs> miserable or deeply unhappy, mm. hide the, the hide their misery in different ways. You know, I think there's got to be a better way. And I think that once, once things evaporate and move on, we'll look back at this particular period and go, yeah, what were we doing? What a waste of time all that was, you know. Do you mean, I, I know you, I know you, Ken Robinson, yeah. taught, the TED Talk, his famous TED Talk, yeah. about that, isn't there? but also he's written a lot about it, hasn't he? But that idea, you mean, where it's this kind of rigid, preparing young people for the sort of well, yeah, factory it's like, work it's, yeah, almost, it's almost, rather like an, than creative work, or anything that yeah. brings themselves to it. Yeah, for anyone who's not who's, uh, who's familiar with it, it's like the idea that the kind of education system was designed at the turn of a turn of the 19th century 1900s mm. so and it was to almost like the preparing you for the military mm. so the bills and you bells and uniforms and lines and everything is about order mm. and it's preparing you to go into a world that's no longer really exists and i think that that's kind of where all our problems lie at the moment we've kind of got this new technology and people are, are glued to screens and also the education system has not really caught up mm. um so you, you you know and 
also you kind of have you feel like you're on an endless conveyor belt of people and you're kind of boxed by the you know and it's also this idea it's also this idea that there's a right way of doing something and a wrong way yeah and you you either pass or fail a subject when actually what ken robinson says is that that's not true at all and it's about there's so much more to to life than being right or wrong in a the yeah, way well, that yeah, we see it well yeah, the I education think system there was it. another thing i think that i watched alan watts he was talking about prickles and goo and he was basically saying there's gooey people and there's prickly people who mm. want uniform and things to fit perfectly into one another and you know and he was i thought it was really interesting it's essentially the same thing it's mm. both you get both sets of people you get uh, romanticism and various different things yeah. and you know they're, and they're all got value and so as much value as a mathematician you know yeah so there's two different you know so you may be one of those each one of those people or maybe a little bit of both but mm. uh and i think the kind of the way that we treat children is kind of like with <laughs> another alan watts thing with have you seen it with the he's going you know you, you feel that you've been tricked by the time you become 40 50 years old because uh he says you know you go to school and you finish infant school you go to set uh, to uh, primary then to secondary and then to college and all the while you're being told it's come on follow the stick it's mm. coming it's coming <laughs> and you've been following the stick and then you you get a job and you keep being following stuff and then uh, you, you look around and and uh, and he says and you feel like you've been tricked and he's in the i think the final line is that you were tricked because you were meant to it's a musical thing and you're meant to dance along the way mm. and that kind of is the same idea that uh, ken robinson's talking about as well with education i think and i, I believe in it as well mm. I, you know because i do something that i really enjoy doing and and you, you know um but I know that I'm very lucky to mm. be able to do that because a lot of people that I speak to are kind of just constantly moaning about their jobs. Yeah, I haven't seen that Alan Watts thing. I'll, I'll look it up though afterwards. Yeah, you should do it. The South Park guys animated it. Oh, yeah. Which makes it even more accessible. But essentially it's the same message. But I know it's also the same message that you'll probably hear on every album that you've ever listened to when you were a, a stone teenager. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all the same stuff, just well, they're all, they're, in a different package. Well, they're all communicating the same message. You know, it's quite, uh, it's quite interesting, isn't it? You know, all of the artists, all of the it, records that you ever listen to, they're all communicate the same ideas you know mm. of peace sharing love forgiveness <laughs> and you know trying to enjoy your life and do what you want you know yeah. um you know easier said than done though yes it is so then when you um that how big a decision was that then to to go and do your you know your exams again your gcses and a levels was that a big thing to go back to school at that point? Not really. I mean, I think I was kind of a little bit lost as to what I was going to do. And you kind of like, you know, um, you start to follow, don't you, things rather mm. than, you know. Was I, it a big wrench, by the way, you know, thinking that your football career was over? Or were you quite happy to leave it yeah, behind at that point? Oh no, you have a big depression when something like that happens. I mean, a lot of, I, I go in now and talk to people at the PFA. And every now and again, I go in and speak, you know, about life after football. Right. Or I'll speak to young footballers or young footballers or footballers who've finished will come and they've had a massive d d depression after they've finished. And because they get looked after at the football clubs, they're mm. like a little child, you know, yeah. everything gets done for you. There's like footballers there. There'll be multi-million pound footballers who have never filled in a form. Their agent will do everything, you know. 
They won't know how to do anything. How yeah. do I get my passport? They'll be, they will be just completely yeah, mollycoddled. They're molly totally looked after, aren't they? From, yeah, they are now. I mean, now it's just ridiculous. I mean, they were looked after when I was a footballer. They're certainly now, you know, now it'll be just in, on a different level. They won't be doing anything for themselves. And obviously, the, there is an endless conveyor belt of footballers, and so when and when you get dropped, you get dropped quickly, mm. and all of a sudden you've got nothing at all, and you go and you realise there's nothing. You know what do I, what do I do? But that's for most people. That's just a uh, you know the reality of life, and they've learned to accept that a lot earlier than yeah. 24, 25, 26, maybe twenty seven. So what I mean, what was that like for you then at that time? Well, it's a tricky time, and you start, but you know, you start to f- figure things out, don't you? For yourself, you need to earn money, and you figure out what the 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 deal was. So at the time, I was just kind of like, I was kind of working, I was on the dole for a little bit, and that was actually kind of like I think a valuable part of our um our system. I think that you know, it's kind of people are knocked, aren't they, for being mm. on the dole? Well, lots of people who were kind of artists at some point or other have had to lean on support from somewhere at some point you know uh so i think it was a, a good thing i don't know what it's like now but, but mm. it's absolutely horrendous now too if you're kind of trying to to to, to kind of like say that you know i'm a musician and yeah. try and sign on you know be you'd be in a factory biting perforations in stamps <laughs> for in no time i think there's a lot more pressure now isn't yeah. there to get a job yeah. Yeah, very quickly individually wrapping baked beans somewhere <laughs> you know like, oh, this would be fantastic um but yeah you know i think uh, yeah so but the, uh, so at the time i was kind of i had a like three or four year period when i was just coaching part-time i didn't i was in and out of different jobs and i think that one of the good things about knowing what you do want to do is also kind of knowing exactly what you don't want to mm. do you know I, what I, were I, the jobs are you doing then i, I did a, I did a year at cable and wireless um selling like phone systems to people it was like start at 12 and you finished at eight and the money was quite good and and i just hated it <laughs> i mean i absolutely hated it but it's not it, it there is another kind of i felt completely caged in that environment you know i just could not for the life of me understand what people got out of this you know hmm. and i think that was the one year of my life where i was like you know just really quite depressed so those call center jobs uh have become like the you know the workhouses of mm. the 20th century i think they're awful i mean alan carr who was a com- obviously a big comedian isn't he mm. I mean, he used to live around here and he used to work at a call center he'd tell me about it <laughs> and he used to tell me about this old woman who lived there you know worked at a call center for so long that skin and hair had grown over a headset <laughs> which always was quite funny yeah. so do you know him from the comedy days then? i knew him from the comedy days yeah so kind of like by that point you know the faster i started to do stand-up comedy and i was getting paid little bits and pieces of money you know mm. it's a bit of like a gypsy p- profession but there were, at the time there was lots of clubs in and around manchester so i started at the frog and bucket in manchester mm. And there was a comedian called Tony Burgess and Alex Boardman who I was kind of gigging with. And then we'd see people come through. Johnny Vegas started to do his first gigs up in and around Manchester. Mm. John Bishop came through uh, at the time. Chris Addison was coming through and Dave Gorman. And really bright, clever comics, really good comics. I was very limited in what I could do, but I liked hanging out with those guys. And What was it like, you know, putting together your first sort of routine? 
that was easier actually because you've got nothing to lose and then it goes well and you think okay this is good and then you start to someone goes oh do you want to do a paid gig and you're mm. like great you know mm. and you do a few paid gigs and then i think you've got to keep pushing and and keep changing your act justin morehouse was interesting because justin when he first started you know he wasn't a very good actor but he'd, he'd worked and worked for a year by the end of a year he started to be a good comic and now he's a superb comic mm. you know and so it, he really grafted at it. He really wanted it, you know. And I think that actually the mentality he had was almost like a footballer's mentality, you know, somebody with... Uh, you'd have somebody who you could see really wanted to, to yeah. play. Yeah. He's the Gary Neville of comedians. He'd <laughs> <laughs> probably like that analogy as well. Well, maybe not. He'd probably want to be Ronaldo. But <laughs> yeah. I think uh, he worked really hard. I admired that. I thought that was, you know, re- really good. Mick Ferry was another one who I thought really worked hard as well too, mm. you know. And now they're, they're, they'll probably take it for granted because they're really gifted comics, you know. Uh and you know, and I knew that I was never going to be there. So why did, why you, how did What made you feel that? Um, well, I, I, I bumped. I did this film recently with Johnny Vegas. And I told him yeah. that he was the reason I quit, and he probably was one of the reasons because I went and saw him once, and he was just had a freedom, and he stood on a table as like this, this table here, and it's wobbling. You know, it's a very small sort of side yeah, table. Yeah, it's like, and the legs are giving way, and he's shouting at people <laughs> and screaming, and I thought this guys completely this is a bit like watching you know a, a drunk in a pub wander around and people going please don't talk to me but in a comedy club because yeah. his act in the early days was pretty wild wasn't it, it? Was, he was wild but he, he was brilliant it yeah. was it, he was he appeared to be very drunk didn't he, he appeared his... to be drunk sometimes he was sometimes he wasn't you know and you know uh he's just i thought was as close to a comic genius that i saw that i saw from that particular group there's some very talented comics that that, you know who could do lots of settled punchline but he was johnny's just uh, i think he's special and i said you know that's what i wanted to be Mm. and there's no way I was going to get anywhere near that. Mm. There's a friend of mine who said to me at one point, he said, there's no room for vanity in comedy. I thought, well, that's me for them. <laughs> <laughs> you, so you think you, you, there's two things, I guess. You, you thought that you saw Johnny Vegas, you thought I'm never going to be as good as that, or I'm never going to be able to be as free as that. But also you're a bit too, too, a bit too vain to allow yourself to do that. Well, I think the, if you've got to have that freedom, haven't you? You've got to just kind of go, look, you know, this is all for... And it's almost like borderline insanity, mm. isn't it? You know, I think that Richard Pryor almost, he was he ha- was a, a, a like a hack comic stand, you know, set up punchline, doing other people's jokes, and then all of a sudden he just went, that's not me, and he he, mm. he went, and he went into some kind of... But it was because he'd driven his life, and he'd addled on drugs, and yeah. he'd gone so far that he just didn't care anymore. And that's when he got his freedom, you know. I was not prepared to go through all that to get to <laughs> being a decent comic. No. You know, um, but I think that that's what you almost have to do to to get to that level, you know. Unless you're kind of really talented in other ways. There's lots mm. of other comedians that I, com- you know, completely admire. I mean, I think Stuart Lee's amazing as well. Mm. Um, but from those comics that I knew around then that were all gigging and all of them had something, they all had different talents, I kind of see them like the X-Men, 
you know, mm. all different things yeah. that they had, different <laughs> skills. But, you know, Wolverine, <laughs> <laughs> let him go. Yeah. He was special. Yeah. He can carry a film on his own. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever go on tour with any of these guys? Or was it all in Manchester? I did, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we, I, I did most of the stuff around the Northwest, to be honest. You know, kind of like, you know, so I was gigging around the Northwest. I used to have a, a, a competition called the Northwest Comedian of the Year. Mm. And I was in the final of that a couple of times. And I think Chris Addison won one year, and then Justin won the the other year, and Alan Carr was in that year as well. Right. Um, so yeah, but that was quite nice, you know. You try and get build up, but I, I kind of knew deep down that that was my level was mm. being a contestant yeah. on a, a Northwest Comedian of the Year, you know. Um, and yeah, and it wasn't even that big a deal. It was just big kudos for for people. But I still bump into all these co- comedians, some belting comedians that you know. And now I think it's like the the club scenes died away, and it's just big stadium gigs that mm. are kind of really bringing home the money for those comedians. So if they haven't really made it, and there's some good ones who haven't, mm. then they're kind of like struggling to get by. Do you still so, go too much comedy or no? I never go. I never go at all. I mean, and and. It's because, you know, I've got this theory as well about films that you only see like two or three decent films a year. Mm. The rest of them are probably not even worth really seeing. And I think the same with comedians. There's probably like one comic, you know, every two or three comics every ten mm. years who are worth seeing. The rest of them, you know, it would be like, yeah, I'd rather just go to the pub and listen <laughs> to someone talk. <laughs> <laughs> so was did you have a similar when you you know you quit football you said that was quite difficult to deal with did, was there a similar sort of um, feeling when you decided to give up comedy or did that feel a bit more a bit easier to no deal with? no I wanted you know I, when I was giving up comedy I, I couldn't understand why I wanted to do it in the first place I couldn't right. remember why I wanted to do it um, so you know. Yeah, I, 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 want, I had six months' worth of gigs lined up and I was dreading doing the gigs, but right. I did them. And I remember the last one and I thought, right, that's it, I'm never doing that again. And I haven't ever since, you know. So did that feel good in that way, that you made a positive decision? Yeah, by that point I was starting to... I'd enrolled in a course making films, I'd done you know, just a BTEC, uh, uh, you know, and I thought, okay, this is going to give me the platform... And we had a really good tutor there, a guy called Steve Barsland, and he was he was um, Steve Marland, I should say, and he was he he was um, a really good photographer. So he taught you how to kind of like do black and white photography prints, and you know you know print them out yourself, do mm. you know get your exposure right? And I thought that was all really good, but he had a really good way of just kind of like because he was a photographer himself. If you were somebody who showed any kind of, you know, interest in film or he'd just give you the, the materials to, to, right. to carry on and do it. So I, I, I think I did some animations, some cardboard cut out Terry Gilliam stuff. Mm. And I did this animation with uh, celebrities with celebrity genitals. So there was like, you know... <laughs> It was quite. <laughs> so they're all running around. I can't remember. I think it was like uh, Jamie Theakston, and he took his pants down. He had a Robbie Williams penis, and <laughs> Posh Spice had Jamie Oliver as a vagina, and, right. and they were kind of like, and they, they were all having sex, and then they pr- produced uh, pop idol things, and at the end, I think um, Jim Davidson comes in and eats them all. And, 
Uh, oh, no, no. No, I can't think. <laughs> anyway, it's kind of like, it was just weird things, yeah. you know. It was, it was a strange little animation. Does it animation. still exist on YouTube somewhere? It does exist, yeah. Does it? And, yeah, and it, it, actually, I put it into Exposures in the animation section and won. <laughs> 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 because it was, you know, it was an attack on the culture of celebrity. And it was silly. Mm. And, you know, but it was totally Terry Gilliam, you know inspire and he just let me kind of like while i was doing all that stuff he got me a rostrum um thing for the camera you know and we start and uh, they just sat there and because i was obsessively making this animation for three or four months and it weren't one at exposures and kind mm-hmm. of like you know and then over the summer i started to uh, make my own films and i'd uh, get the keys and come in and edit because I didn't have my own edit suite mm. so I'd come in and edit over the summer and I thought that was really good um, but I kind of like I've got that's, something really bad happened at the, <laughs> at the, at the, there because um, um, I, over the summer I got my own keys cut Right. Okay. So I got my own keys. Were you supposed cut. to do that? And no, I wasn't supposed to do that. So, I, but it was all driven out of the passion for making films. I didn't want to steal anything. But the technicians at colleges, you know what they're like. They yeah. kind of like they behave like it's their own children that you yeah. try to take away. So, and uh, I think we'd lost a tripod, so we weren't in, in well with this uh, this technician anyway. And he was always grumpy and miserable whenever he was handing out kit, and we had to beg to kind of take stuff overnight and wherever else and so to get into the edit suite after you know after hours he hated all that you know the the tutor was like go ahead yeah go and you know <laughs> what you're doing you're just going to make your work yeah go and do it he was encouraging you to make the work the technician was looking at it and from a different te- point of view mm. so anyway I, I started sneaking in late at night and going and using the the thing uh, the, the 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 computer room and people would see me in there and stuff like that and the, but there the technician lost his keys and then figured out that i was in there and right. i must have stolen his keys oh, no. and i was I, I couldn't turn around and say these aren't your keys these are the keys that i stole and had cut <laughs> <laughs> these are my keys <laughs> i couldn't tell him that oh no so it kind of materialized in him uh, i think we just being aggressive with him <laughs> did it was it all right in the end or we, did we think disciplined just, in any way or? no i wasn't disciplined i mean i think that the tutor just looked at it like going what's he doing you know yeah. what crimes he done he's got a set of keys just get some new keys cut yeah you know and i was like but i could know then i couldn't say to them you know i could never confess so this is a confessional i did <laughs> have keys but I, they were my keys i'd have keys cut you must have lost yours. Yeah. So if yeah. the technician is listening, then yeah, the technician's the listening. Reveal, I'm, I'm sorry, Pete. I kind of like uh, you. You were quite right in some ways, but in other ways, you know, what did I do so wrong? <laughs> so was this before you went to university? Then or was this? This was before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of like you know this is all. I went to university late. So what did you do at university then? University, I went and did film. So kind of like um, I did, I, 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 I skipped a couple of years on it. I, 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 jo- I think I joined in the, the three-year degree. I joined in the second year. Mm. So I skipped the first year because I started to do another course and it wasn't quite right for me. You know, there were lots of different things they were trying to do and I just wanted to do film. Mm. I was, uh, by that point, I just wanted to make films. And um, uh, I started making these short films that I talked about before, the, the comedies, and they were going doing quite well. And 
I think on a course like that, I think on most courses with film courses, it's so competitive. You can look around the room. If you've got 30 students in there, you probably think one, maybe two will go on and work in the mm. industry. It's that competitive. You're not going to make it. And I wanted to be in the two. So whenever there was somebody that came in who was a professional, I'd latched onto them. So Jim Mooney, who, um, who runs a place called The Basement, came in. Um, who ran a place called The Basement. He now runs... Um, He's still got the basement, but he's also part of Emu Films, which are quite a, probably the big one of the biggest companies in the in Manchester are making mm. feature films. Um, and he came in, and I gave him the the the, the films, and he, it was funny. He came in the next day, and he came and said, uh, "What the fuck are you doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a huge compliment. So you meant you were way. Uh, more advanced than the others, basically, or, or you were. To, to a certain, why yeah. were you studying it when you were already making films? Yeah, in in a way, you know, I think that he wasn't impressed with the people that were on the course, but he was basically going. Well, but I was going. Well, I was there because I could get free kit hmm. and I could get stuff, you know. And I, I did some stu some stuff, and this kind of like you know, I I'd always been a bit of an opportunist, I think, and the the the. the college the the university gave me something to make over the summer so they gave me this job and they said i will give you a grand and a half and i thought great i'm a student you know that's great i'll mm. i'll cut and everything and do everything but then things started to go wrong with the job that needed to be sorted out and they were all on the summer holidays yeah so the clients coming to me and i'm saying well i, I you know and this is the first time i suppose that i was running my own job and out of curiosity, I said, well, how much are you, get, are you paying them for this? Mm. And they said 15000 And I was like, <laughs> right, now that, you know. So yeah. what I said to them, I said, this has really peed me off, you know. I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm doing this job for a grand and a half. I'm basically having to carry the whole thing. And I went in and complained to them, and they said, well, that money's paying for a Bangladeshi student. I was like, well... At that point... <laughs> That's a strange <laughs> yeah. way of coming back, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's a strange way of coming back, but yeah. That's, um, you know... I was like, well, that's very nice for the Bangladeshi <laughs> student. However, there's 13 and a half grand that <laughs> unaccounted for. Well, So anyway, I went back to the, the client and I said, next time you're making, a, making something, I'll do it for nine. Right, nice. And they did. <laughs> they came back to me and then I put it in as a piece of coursework. <laughs> <laughs> so that must have been a real eye-opener in terms of the industry, was it? It was, because that's your first time when you go, okay... Now I see how things work, yeah. and then you kind of like now I'm I'm employing people. I can bring in people. I can buy the kit, and I can do stuff. And other jobs started to come in, but it was from that one opportunity. Mm. And you kind of go to yourself, you know, how do you get a start in anything? You need a little opportunity, but also to be aware when your opportunity does arise. Yes, as you can go. Okay, I'm going to grab this with two hands. So there's that, and then I kind of like begged my dad to buy me, lend me some money mm. to kind of like. Um, to get a computer and that was it you know so you know i needed it was like early max to be able to kind of mm. cut on an edit and that was great you know so i could start to and this is i think there was a it was a quick turn at that time and there was loads of people caught out in film and television who were old school and they were used to work in a certain way and were used to things coming in and technologies change and all of a sudden we had people who were working for an editing from home mm. and i was probably on the first curve of that and yeah. we started to get lots of money there was lots of money 
for uh, corporate jobs in and around Manchester because the uh, Labour government were in and they were, they put money into things like that. They did. And uh, the Tories don't. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, the, the, so we kind of like, for us, we're going, okay, perfect. So I could edit myself. I started to know people who were buying their own camera kit and we were crewing up and we started to go and get lots and lots of work at that time. Mm. Um, and... Um, you know, like I said, there was kind of like there was money floating around everywhere for in local authorities. People say it was wasted. I don't <laughs> think it was actually. <laughs> so it's, it's clear that at this point you were like film. You were totally on top of that. That was what you wanted to do. Yeah, but but, but when was the point then when you thought, okay, that's what I want to do? You know, whereas before when you were sort of dabbling in a bit of film, and then yeah. to the point where you think, okay, right, this is it. This is what I de- definitely want to do. Well, you know what it happens. I think the kind of like it t- takes you a long time, you know, to or some people. It's taken me a long time to realise that there isn't a magic one moment where somebody comes and taps on your door and says, you know, hey, here's a big bag of money, go and make a <laughs> film for me. Mm. It doesn't work like that, you know. And I think the kind of like you have a. It's weird now when I talk to people that it's it's strange. They'd be like going, why don't you go and put your film on Netflix? And you're like. Well, I would do if it was that easy, if you yeah. understood what how complicated it is to go and get a film on anywhere, yeah. you know. But it's interesting, but there is that naivety that you do have, isn't it? And I suppose that naivety is good in some ways, because it's a naiv- naivety that makes you go to America on 99 quid and land yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but what, I'm no- what I no- do notice is kind of like that when you're young, people want to help you out. When you're old... <laughs> the yeah, love seems the to run out. Dries up. <laughs> the love dries up, and you're on your own, you know. But if you're a puppy-faced young person, then you, that's the kind of you know you get yeah. away with it for yeah. for them. Um, but yeah, the kind of like I think the the I realised that there wasn't going to be you know. So I was trying to make money, and we were making decent money making corporate videos and various other things, and we were doing stuff for local authorities, mainly in Tameside. And there was me and a guy called Gino Evans who runs Brick House mm. and a guy called Martin Wayne who's a camera op who do freelances around Manchester as well. So the three of us were all all together. And Gino became like our friend, my best friend, because he had a set of lights, <laughs> you know, and that's how we were acquiring pals at that time. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I think I was a little bit more clued, a bit older than them, a little bit more clued up as to what was going on politically. And I could see that there was a Tory government coming in. There was an economic downturn and said, all of this money is going to go. And it took a year for it to happen. But when it did, it just went and there was nothing there mm. at all. And so now you're scrambling around. And so I knew that we had to diversify. Uh, Gino had said to me, well, I'm going to go in and try and get some commercial work. I want to be a commercials director. Martin just wanted to be camera op. And I was like, well, okay. And I thought, well, I'll do commercials as well. And it turned out that it transpired. He went and set up a new company and instilled us like corporate stuff. Mm. And I went and started going after the commercial stuff. So I started to enter competitions film competitions and it's like i suppose that idea of giving things a go and always having a mod you know some kind of success with it mm. so i saw a, a, a picture of a friend of mine uh, another director called andrew gaynor do i think he works doing stuff in with hbo now in america and um he had, had done a short 
called CGI Brows, <laughs> and which was quite funny, <laughs> with a, um, a, an actor called Kieran Griffiths, who was a, from around here, was in Shameless. And it was quite quite funny about how you could um, give people, you know, you could put some green screen over their eyebrows and you could make them, give them their expression right, themselves. Okay. And it was well made and well done. And they, they, they won the People's Choice Award at the uh, Virgin Media Shorts. And uh, saw that the grand prize for that uh, thing was £30,000. So, and I saw a picture of him with Noel Clark and somebody else, and his caption underneath said, I can't wait to leave all my old friends behind. <laughs> which, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> so I was like, Andrew, who, what's this competition? He said, Virgin Media Short. So um, the next year we entered and we'd done something, a a short film that we've been for a local authority, which was about the sex education thing about a this talking bus baby. baby, bus yeah. baby. Yeah. yeah, I watched so, Bus Baby. It's, did you? Yeah, it's quite unsettling. Yeah, it's yeah. So it's like we're so funny. It's it's, it's funny. funny yeah. It's, yeah. So we'd made that, and we'd done it as part of this sex education thing because we were doing these packs. So I said, oh, actually, that could work quite well as a a short film. So mm. then we put it in, and we got to the final twelve, and we won the People's Choice Award. Mm. But by that point, you know, you're in our and I'm starting to look at all of the proper films that are being made, and there's some decent filmmakers were entering that competition, and and I was looking at what we lost to and how you know, and I figured out oh how this works. So the year after, I made another one called Two Twenty, which was a lot yeah. more cinematic and a lot more tailored to that you know two minutes twenty mm. time space. It was a lot more visual, and I basically just copied all the previous winners and made right. wrote my own short. Again, film. I watched this again. I mean, it's again, it's quite unsettling as well. By the way, these you can watch these on YouTube yeah, can't yeah. You, if you want to. Yeah. But also, I I read that it cost you one pound seventy five to make that. Is that right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, it kind of is. In it, terms of what you the obviously your time and everyone else's time, but yeah, I mean, I a, that anyone. was your expense, wasn't it? It was really funny because we shot all that all around Rusham, yeah. And um, and it was it was an odd one because uh, uh, while we were out filming, um, uh, Dominic Noonan was there. I'm oh, sure yeah. we were out filming. So that's the the gangster, yeah, right? right Manchester, yeah. He's a well-known Manchester gangster. Well, I knew who, I knew who he was, but I was like. Phew. You know, and I, I looked over his shoulder as he's coming. He's going, "What are you doing?" And uh, I looked so behind. Was he just there by chance? You mean he's just there in the middle of Rush Home, and he's just kind of like, "We've got all sorts of because we're out in the middle of the streets. We're in the middle of Rush Home. We're shooting there. Probably didn't have our licenses. We didn't have any licenses. We're shooting gorilla. Right. I'd gone to the sheet uh, ship. It was quite funny. I'll tell you the first stuff. I went and saw them. I said, uh, went to the shisha bar to see the shisha. This our bar owner. I said, "Can we use your restaurant mm. to film in?" And we got taken through the backs of these things and they were like, all these people are really suspicious who we are. And I'm with the producer and we're sat there and they bring us some shisha out and it's like a thing from The Sopranos <laughs> just to meet this guy who owns this shisha Did bar. Did you feel obliged to indulge in but the Yeah, so we're sat, sat there and she just looked at me and she went, I'm, I'm really scared. <laughs> 
<laughs> I said, don't worry. It's going to be fine. You know, the same approach. Just go and say what we're going to do. Look, I said, we're filmmakers. We want to use this. We want to do that. You know, would you help us out? And they were lovely. They went, have the thing. If we shot at 12. I'll be up in the Sushisha thing. You can have it for four hours. Right. Just go and shoot and give me a shout when you're done. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. You know what I mean? Those guys, just mm. because by going and talking to them, <clears throat> what, you know, how friendly they were. So kind of like, it just shows you, you know, you put your cards on the table. Yeah. You've what was potentially, you know, a, a, in a, you know, a <laughs> volatile situation turned into something lovely. Mm. And then we actually didn't use any of that footage. Right. I, I decided we need this to be on the street. So yes. we reshot everything that we'd done. I looked at it in the, I went actually. And so everybody was really peed off that I dragged them in there, shot the thing. Yeah. And then I brought them back out again and said, we need to reshoot. It all needs to be Did on you the do street. Because it, it was on the street in the, table on the street wasn't yeah, it so, so was it was in the same different, place no, I oh, did a different, different one so I went and saw another shisha guy <laughs> and said look you know we're doing the same thing and he said yeah no problem no problem I said what name do you want on the credits he was like no, don't put me on the credits <laughs> I said got you <laughs> got you no names no names alright no problem so um, uh, we shot on the street but then kind of like Dominic Noon came over and, and he's like uh, asking what we're doing you know, friendly enough, he's just going, you know. But I could see behind him my, um, the, the, the continuity girl, the script supervisor, and she's just mouthing to me. <laughs> she's like going, she's going, <laughs> you know. I'm going, I know, don't worry, don't worry. So I said, well, we're making a short film. I explained the thing, the situation to him, what the film's about. And he went, bloody hell, that's dark. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, well, wow. probably not as dark as you know, <laughs> you know. But it was he was he was nice, and they kind of like he he went off and separate ways, and um, we we got the film shot, you know. And we obviously bumping into lots of colorful colorful characters. And I, I knew when we cut that film together that it was a good little mm. short film, tight mm. short film, and it had a lot of atmosphere as well. And that one won. The award, didn't it? That won well? the award, and that kind of set me off then, because how are you going to break into the film industry? You know, so then you start to get a little bit of support from the BFI. You've mm. won thirty thousand pounds, and you can make another film, and it's a platform to go and do something else, and it starts to legitimise some of the other things. So, was that one pound seventy five? Was that? Well, no. Basically, I, I bought people for you know food on there. We didn't spend you know we, we spent nothing probably on the film. There's no lighting on it. There's nothing brought in. We borrowed all our kit, you know, and everybody came the out for nothing for, for free. Did they? Everybody worked for nothing, you know. And then you get people calling you up, you see, and then you put something like that on, then you're going, I think it's disgusting. You're making actors work for right. for one pound seventy five, and go, well, nobody's got any money. Mm. How are we going to pay people money if you haven't got any money? So I think that's the the filmmakers know that's the reality. I mean, I feel sorry for actors, of course, if you're an actor or an actress and you've got to go and, you know, but that's the same thing. I think have, with actors and actresses, if they're going to do stuff and they're going to do, Ken Loach says, do no, don't do anything for free. And I think, well, okay, that's all right for you, Ken. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that at some points you have to, but if you're going to do something for free, have do a bit of research on who you're doing it with. Mm -hmm. And if you if they're good, then it might be worth it because you might be, you know, end up and lots of people that I work with on that shoot are working with me on the feature film further down the line. 
Right. And that one pound seventy five was that to That's pay their an wages extra? later on. Was that to, yeah? <laughs> was that to pay an extra to walk past or something? That's what I read in the paper anyway. Oh, no, the one pound. That's that's right. What happened was there was a no. The, this is the real story. We had this woman, and she's obviously she's dressed up and she's meant to be homeless. Yeah. And she's pushing this car, and this woman, should we say, kind of like early thirties, comes by going. Yeah, she's not a proper homeless. I'm proper homeless. Let me do this. Right. And so she, then she, uh, people are talking to her, and she's starting on the cameraman, and she's going, <laughs> yes, nah, wah, 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 wah. I don't know. And I was like, starting on everybody, and right. I'm thinking, right. <laughs> this is like the middle of the night. In this Russia. is the middle of the night. And so I said, how much is it going to take for you to piss off? <laughs> she went, 175. <laughs> <laughs> Straight off. Yes. Wow. And I went, there you it's go. Very precise. She was 175. And I went, no problem. See you later. <laughs> did, was she, did she hold up her end of the bargain? She held up her end of the bargain. Later on, she turned back up and she's on the. the uh, we had a big photograph with all of us oh, as yeah. we're finishing at four in the morning. She turned back up and she's on it with <laughs> us. So, um, yeah. She was the other true, true story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah. That, so, that's the one seventy five. It cost me one seventy five to get rid of this homeless one. How? Um, yeah. So you say a lot of the people have gone on to carry on working with you. Yeah. So that in, I guess that is a big thing, isn't it, for a lot of people trying to get into <coughs> creative industries? Is is when do you give your time up for free? And and often it is a difficult decision. I don't know. It's, it's a difficult area, isn't it? Because there it are, is. it can create opportunities, but equally you don't want to sell yourself short. Well, crews grow together, don't they? So if you've got a crew that are working and you're making good stuff and you're enjoying it, then that's exactly what it's all about anyway. Does so, that happen a lot in the industry then, that crews will well, I mean, you know, start off with a crew and then you'll carry on with them? I think it depends on where you... If you're coming from a working class background, I think if you've gone to the National Film School, then you're probably not going to be the route that you go down. But mm. if you're Ben Wheatley or if you're Shane Meadows or mm. if you're coming from, you know the north if you're making something out of doncaster then you're going to be doing stuff flat way you know yeah and actually the other working class you know martin scorsese talks about you know how he had his parents in films all the time yeah. and various other things and working with essentially his mates he just expanded what he was doing to you know hollywood scale you mm. know what i mean which is obviously the dream yeah you know ben wheatley's probably doing the same thing he's probably got all of his mates in and I think that, for for me, is what it's about, really. I think for filmmaking purposes, anyway. Mm. You know, now you're in the middle now, aren't you? Of well, mm. promoting. You've got the premiere coming up, haven't you? Of uh, Eaten by Lions. Yeah, is that right? In, in Edinburgh. That's right. So Edinburgh premiere. Yeah, in um, in a week, week and a bit. Yeah. yeah. So just tell tell me about the the film because uh, it, it started off with one of your shorts, didn't it? As well, I think. That's or right. the inspiration for it. Yeah, with the we um, we uh, with the thirty thousand that we made for, from you know, um, Virgin Media shorts, we made a short film with Emu Films, which is Jim Mooney and Mike Elliott um, and Wally Ola for called Going to Mecca. And that was, we were looking around for a young kid who could play this comedy role. And we had support from Chris Collins, who was then at the BFI, um, who sadly passed away, actually. And he was a good guy, actually. He, mm. he was probably one of the best people we met in the industry. And um, <clears throat> and so we made this short film, but we were looking for a young kid who could do comedy. And at the time, we were watching Britain's Got Talent, and Jack Carroll came on. He was like a 13, 14-year-old stand-up comedian. And 
we went and met him and when we met him in the room we just realized he's a funny kid this you know he's like a 40 year old bloke in a <laughs> 13 year old's body he's got a real good attitude he still has he was on frankie Boyle's thing the other night yeah um and you know although he's 18 19 now he um yeah he's kind of like so we met Jack, we met his family. His family are kind of a, uh, all financial advisors, and via them, things kind of slowly escalated into us making a film. And Jack's parents started to raise some money for the feature film. It took a while to get off the ground because it would have been perfect to do it a year after. Um, but you know, we, we, we've we've done it four four or five years later. So that's basically it. Um, <clears throat> and. Yeah, we've kind of done it our own way. We kind of like so the first film that I, I kind of uh, crowdfunded for, and then uh, one of the investors from Eaten by Lions gave me some money. Uh, a guy called Chris Boutley, who's really interested in getting involved in filmmaking, and is extremely wealthy as well. So you know, uh, in, but he's been really supportive of mm. of all of the the projects. So I think he's kind of like. You know, I think if you, it's like that Ken Robinson thing, isn't it? You know, people get to a certain point, if they've been successful and they've got a platform, why not go mm. and explore doing something a little bit more artistic? And Eaten by Lions is about two brothers, isn't it? Or two, two half-brothers? Yes, Eaten by Lions is about two half-brothers, um, uh, Pete and Omar, and they um, their parents die in a tragic accident and when the gran who's been raising them passes away they go looking for omar's pakistani family with hilarious consequences <laughs> i think a lot of it's shot in blackpool isn't it so a lot of shot in blackpool we shot in cholton right I shot my old, old next door to my old house in cholton right. where i grew up um and yeah so um yeah, it was, it was really good fun. We've got a great cast. We've got uh, Kevin Eldon, Johnny Vegas, Asim yep. Chowdhury, who's Chibuddy G on People's Just Do Nothing, uh, Vicky Pepperdine, Hayley Tamadon, Jack Carroll, Antonio Akeel, Tom Bins, who's really funny, hmm. Peter Slater, who's somebody who was doing those first taxi driver sketches with me years ago. Right. I was going to ask you about Peter Slater because yeah. I actually saw... It's a few years, a long time ago now, but I saw him do Randolph Tempest. Yeah. And I just, it really stuck with me. It was really funny. How did you meet him and how long have you... Because I see he's popped up in a lot of your films, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, me and Peter are old friends. So, yeah, kind of like Peter, uh, when I first, very first started making films, it was just me with a handy cam and driving around with... Uh, either Irfan Nazir is another old friend and he's in the film as well. Right. Or And Peter Slater. Right. And Peter Slater was so funny. <laughs> He's, he could it, he could do he could improvise Peter. So with Irfan, we had to write things. We had to write all these jokes for him, and we do you know. Uh, but he's not really a comic. He's just a friend of mine. But he's still mm. got a very gregarious, very funny um, delivery. And uh, Tony Burgess wrote me some jokes. I think Tony wrote me a joke for it, which was quite funny. Which was um, about a taxi driver. That's Asian taxi driver. He says, "Oh, I've." Um, uh, I've just uh, just seen Stephen Hawkins and he was up a tree <laughs> and he got down from the tree and he flagged me down and I said where to and he goes uh, laser quest 
<laughs> and I just thought it was really funny, you know. And that actually <laughs> set up the tone of these kind of like bullshit stories from taxi drivers. Right. Um, so, uh, and Peter Slater did this, he did some really funny improvisations. There's a bit that he did in Where To Mate where I was absolutely crying with laughter when he was talking about the Muppets having AIDS. And, and it was just brilliant. Uh, still, it's one of those things where, you know, with improvisations, you can, you get them one time and you know that it's going to be, yeah. you know, um, yeah, but it's really, yeah, he's, he, he's done some really good stuff. So Peter used to come and he would, he would um, <coughs> improvise in the cab. We'd go with a shadow idea and we just started to develop stuff. And I realized then, you know, what a talented <laughs> comic he was. It's a shame. He kind of like, I wish I'd got... There was a they got a TV pilot, and I wish I'd got to direct that. It would have been much better. You know, we had such a good relationship working on camera, and actually, since then, I've developed a similar relationship with Tom Bins, and something similar happened with that. You know, I wish I'd done that TV pilot for him because mm. it both of those pilots crashed and burned. You know, and um, I, I, I just think it was a missed opportunity. We would have done something where mm. we there's there's sometimes uh, a chemistry between the director and the performers that you know you can't really explain to people it just mm. kind of works somehow and meddling producers come in and break it up and bring somebody new in and i guess that's very important with especially improvisational stuff i don't know is, yeah is well, it's really imp important with improvisation because the, the performers have got to a feel like they've got a platform to know you know that they can try things out with you mm. and also secondly they've got to um You've got to kind of you you edit for them. You've got to kind of like people only see the really good good bits, and mm. if you leave any of the rubbish in, then it doesn't work, you know. So it's just kind of having a. There's two things I think that gel together. It's them kind of like having the talent to a improvise and do these amazing things, but mm. also for you to know how to time it and mm. and, and cut it, and you know. And it's a subtle thing, and it's really difficult to explain to people. Mm, yeah. But sometimes things just work, and you can't explain why, mm. you know. And it happens in different careers as well. I think it happens in football. I, mean, I can't explain why Man United won that <laughs> league in 2013 with Phil Jones and Smalling, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the same team comes seventh the year after, yeah. you know, and because they bring someone new in. And I think that these things are a effect, you know, I think yeah. it's a, a bit, but the, I kind of, I, I, I still carry, because of a football, you know, mentality. I kind of like I carry it through from every everything that I do now. I okay, think, you know? in what like transposing the sort of roles and teamwork I elements of football to yeah, to the I, filmmaking. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I can see the the film sets are like that. You know, it's like this, some people need an arm around them, and some people need confrontation, and some team. You know, you've got to figure out. You, there is a little bit of man and management. You know, different people need different things to get the best out of them. Some need cajoling and some need, mm. you know, telling that they're the best, you know, it's it's kind of understanding that. I think that I'm convinced that that's what Ferguson had. I was going to say, so that 2000 season, 2013 season you mentioned, that was Fergie's last season. Yeah, so yeah. they won the league and then they came seventh the year after. Yeah. yeah. But And so then do you see us not 
comparing yourself to no. Fergie, but do you see yourself in that? That's your as the director. Is that your role, like the football manager? It's just my approach because I can. The only way that I know how is to, uh, you know, to <clears throat> put it into the terms that I understand, which is, mm. you know, my upbringing was as a footballer from an age of sixteen. You know, you know, you're thrown pretty quickly and from a kid at school into a, you know, a world full of mm. men. <laughs> who want to kick you. Who want to kick you, want to hurt you, and are probably not the brightest either, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of like it's a mix of different things that go on. So I don't know whether this is a good way to kind of run your life from then onwards. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, this is the, it's the only thing that you know, isn't it? You know, the kind of like I understand. But there are comparisons, I think, mm. into how... You know, you work as a team. You know, you know uh, uh, making a film and making a, is is people working as a team, and you have star players and you have star performers, and you have to mm. treat people slightly differently. You know. And did you feel that? I mean, I'm guessing Eaten by Lions is the biggest project you've done. Yeah. And so, did it feel because it's a bigger scale than the stuff you've done before? Did you feel like it was much more difficult, or did you feel because it's sort of a, a gradual process to get to this point that you were able to deal with the different elements? Well, I mean, I was surrounded by my own team. We tried to tr treat it like nothing, you know, and it wasn't any different from anything that we were do, you know, done previously. That was the kind of feeling that we tried to get on set. It doesn't quite work sometimes, and and now I can, you know, you you start to get empathy for other people who are coming in from outside and how they want to run things, and you you know you start to look at it yourself and go, maybe I could do that differently, and mm. you know. But it's such an expensive operation, and it's not the kind of thing that you get a chance to, you know, you get you, you get one, maybe two chances to make films, and if you don't make money for other people, this is the reality of the yeah. world, you don't yeah. make money for other people, you don't get that opportunity again. Yeah. If you do make money for other people, all of a sudden you're the flavour of the month and you might get the, the work. But if you listen to any of the, the filmmakers... You know, I think I was listening to Ken Loach and he was talking about how almost quitting in the late 80s, mm. you know, almost kind of giving it up and going and trying to do something else. I think the main thing is that filmmakers make films. You find a way to make something. If you can't get a million quid, get 500,000. You can't get 500,000, get 250. Mm. Can't get that, get £2.50 and buy a homeless woman to get out the way of your shop. <laughs> Yeah, you know, find a way and convince people to go and make your films because yeah. otherwise you've got nothing to show people, have you? You know, so that's kind of like where the, where where we're at with it. Mm. So at the moment, great, we're getting some money, but I know that uh, to make films, but I know it's a privilege and it could disappear at any moment. <laughs> so eaten by lions beyond the premiere then in Edinburgh, will we will people be able to see that in? Um, well, hopefully, but this is the next thing because you know you start to learn that the the, the um, you, you start to learn that kind of the, the part of the 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 easy part in a way is making the film, um, selling it and getting it out there is a different thing. Now the distribution has just changed in the last five, six, seven years. So it used to be a big DVD market. So a film like this probably would do well and would get picked up and you'd know you'd they'd recoup their money on the DVD sales. Mm. But now everything's online. And um, it, you know, so the money's dis it's, it's changed it. For, so for a theatrical release, we're not sure yet. We'll have to wait and see. Mm. Um, but then, you know, hopefully we'll sell it to some somebody and we'll pick it up, and you'll be able to see it on one of the Amazon or Netflix or something further down mm. the line. But you know, we'll wait and see. With same with both films, really, they're both 
it's a tricky thing. There's lots and lots of films being made, and at the moment there's like a surplus of films that mm. have been made for big budgets that have not found a market, you know, and that's when they were made two years ago. Yeah. I guess it's a bit of, it feels like a bit of a Wild West in a way. I don't know whether you would agree in terms of the way that things are working. The, the, in the way well, the music industry has changed massively yeah. because of digital, it's, it's the same thing going on I with think telly it's the and same film. As it? It's, it, what, what happens is you end up with something where you have no, you have two extremes. You have something, things right at the top mm. and you have stuff right at the bottom and you have nothing in the middle. And I think that's how music feels at the moment. Yeah. Is where you kind of going, right, you've got these massive stadium tours. The same with comedy as well. Yeah. And the, all of the things. And I think that this is this is bad. You know, it's, it's, it's not good for the industry. But uh, I think that something will happen again. And it will, you know, people find a way, don't they, to yeah. get their stuff out there. You know. Um, so, yeah, I think there's similarities between what's happened with music and what's happened with film. Um, but for mu- most musicians, they just want to make music, don't they? And most yeah. filmmakers, they just want to make films. But, you know, I'm not too worried. I'll find a way somehow. I don't mind if I go back to making stuff for a tenor again. <laughs> but you mentioned uh, earlier before we uh, started speaking on, on tape that you are, uh, your next film is a slightly different tack, isn't it? You're not doing comedy for the next one. Well, yeah, I'm working on of... two scripts at the minute. Oh, okay, go on. What's so the, I've got, the two, I've got two scripts. On? I've got one which is a. A gangster um, thing, which is a, a, a real life gangster story about how some guys in Manchester got involved in. Can I say this? <laughs> Probably, I don't know. And I say, let's just say they got involved in something that was much bigger than them. And it's a massive event in Manchester, and they inadvertently got involved in it. And their stories, this is all real stories, and it's going to be like, the way I pitch it, it's going to be like Manchester's Goodfellas. It's three decades of crime in Manchester set to three decades of Manchester music. Okay. So it's uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the story's amazing. The the stories and the kind of... And actually, if you think about gangster films, we've seen so many, like, southern ones with... You slag, you know all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah. Oh, when, uh, when have we seen a Mancunian one? Yeah. And there's Mancunian revenge story. I'll give you an example of one of the stories in it, which was kind of like always makes me laugh. They, they used to plan like stuff for months and months in advance, and uh, they were scouting out this job that we were going to do. And this is that a robbery? You this mean, is a robbery. Yeah. yeah. And a guy came out and, and you know like a civilian and said, "Oh, you know, you got to move on." Uh, oh, you know, and so. They planned it for months and months in advance. And one of us said, right, I'm going to go and get him back. And they said, don't, just leave him. He's a civilian, you know. Mm. So uh, what they did was they went and found a dirty, shitty mattress in the middle of Manchester, wrapped it up like a Swiss roll, went to where, found out where this guy parked his car every day, opened his car up and sprung it open in his car. <laughs> so this guy comes back to his car. It's oversized mattress. He can't get it out. His hands are covered in crap. And he's like, uh, you know. So then they went downstairs and told the security guard, they said, there's a bloke up there trying to rob a mattress. <laughs> The security guard came over and goes, Oi, what are you doing? He's going, oh, Someone's put this in my car. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, a likely story. Anyway, they said uh, the funniest thing was watching this little old man drive away with his face squashed against the, the windscreen with this mattress in his car. And this, I thought, that's 
the Mancunian revenge. Yes. You know, a very Mancunian droll thing. And this is the kind of story that ends up in this in this script. And there's loads of them. And it's uh, it's just really funny. It sounds like a great premise. So you're working on the script for that? Working on the script for that, yeah, which um, I think I'm going to try and take either a TV route with that one, possibly do it as a series. Mm. Um, But, you know, anyway, that's that's exciting. That one, you know, I think it'll be good. Are you writing that yourself or is that co-written? I'm co-written. I'm writing it with uh, one of the guys who's brought me the story. And so he tells me the stories and then we put them down and then I start to shape it into what's going to work for a narrative. Right. Um, that's gone. That's the, uh, you know, could be special that one. Mm. Um, uh, but then there's another one that I'm working on, which is a more of a commission. Uh, well, it is a commission, and it's one of the investors has got this idea. He's kind of uh, lives in Monaco, and he's he, he's been researching um, finance and how he put a potential collapse global collapse could come about and um this is all surrounding finance and gold in particular and uh it's quite a fascinating story so we're working on this this script and we're trying to get it into a a situation now obviously you can finance the film themselves, these guys, if they mm. want to, but they know now that this is not the business model, so they'll be looking for buy-in early doors. Okay. So, you know, once the script's written, they'll be wanting to get people in. But there's two things that are going on because they want to get this film out before this event actually happens because it's okay. like a preemptive crash. So, so they believe another... I mean, if we think about 2008 was a crash, they believe another crash is around the corner. Yes, uh, and I can't say too much about it, but sure. buy gold <laughs> while you still can. That, that's the uh, all right. We don't we don't do too much detail, but it centres around gold. That's right, isn't it? It does. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it does. And I kind of I know that I've told you a little bit some pieces about it, but I'm, I'm mindful that you know I've got a contract with them, and I can't yeah. really say too much about it. Um, but it's fascinating, and it's essentially a film about the transference of a slow drain of a transference of wealth from um, west to east, which I think is happening. You mm. can see that. And no, not many people would argue with that. Mm. And I can. So there's certain things that I can talk about. For example, you know, um, how uh, in 2008, the American economy was like 8 billion in debt. And mm. now go and check out uh, US debt clock online. And so in 10 years... The U.S. debt is some standing at something like twenty-three million, and now if this isn't setting alarm bells off for people, I don't know what mm. will. You know, um, and it, you have just things where people are scratching their head. QE has been going on for I don't know how long for, for, for that ten years. Yeah. For, for two thousand eight, yeah. they've just stopped, haven't they? Though they're mm. phasing it out, yeah. but. They've been buying companies with that money that they've been freshly printed. I mean, what we're dealing with is not capitalism so i don't know what this is mm. but you know this is just complete mickey mouse economics and at some point people are going it has to collapse somewhere uh so they're looking and there seems to be bubbles all over the place so um you know i've got f- quite fascinated with the whole thing i'm really interested in bitcoin as well as, yeah. as a part of this yeah because um, i saw that bitcoin was a, a a fight back against a banking system in a way yeah uh, this is people who wanted to live outside of that i know that people are really suspect of, uh, of it i 
personally wouldn't go with any cryptocurrency other than Bitcoin. I'd be suspicious of of stuff outside mm. of Bitcoin. But I think Bitcoin comes through from almost like BitTorrent and yeah. this kind of idea of sharing information and having it not not having it centralized is key and i think that this is the idea behind this because there's long been uh, people have imagined a cashless society but the cashless society that Bitcoin imagines and the cashless society that your Tory MP might <laughs> imagine are two different things. Yeah. I mean, the best way to explain it, I think, for people who don't understand Bitcoin is that, and this is the way that somebody explained it to me, if you go into a shop now and you go with your uh, cash card, Visa or whatever else, and uh, you want to buy a bottle of water, it go the information goes from the shop to the bank and the bank say, yes, you can have a bottle of water. Yeah. You've got credit. With Bitcoin you are the bank mm. you don't have to ask the bank for that permission yeah. you've and i can see that as a future of commerce for certain do you use bitcoin now no <laughs> <laughs> i don't but i can see it as a i can see the appeal yeah. if it but you know at the same time people are talking about it it could completely blow up because you're still operating within the system the that you know so you're still buying the things with pounds and whatever else yeah. and, and so dollars. still an exchange rate there's still to, an exchange rate as you know attached which to as it. we know has been pretty volatile over the last couple of years yeah which is you know this is so and what happens does it you know the the bottom line is that when things collapse when things go start to go wrong they start people panic and look for somewhere safe to put their their assets mm. and um bitcoin replicates gold and i think that gold and bitcoin would do very well in a time like that mm. to be honest so those two projects to watch out for soon yeah. just out of interest then with those two they're very different aren't they and, yeah but you've been it sounds like you were approached by someone to do that in each case so how did they find you or how did they come across you on for the for the for both the the the, the finance film but also the um the one about manchester oh with the kind of the the, the manchester one was a kind of like a, a, a as a, a friend of a friend had introduced me to and he'd started to try and write it mm. um basically just annotating what what stuff um the guy was telling him so he was kind of like we're, we're writing down verbatim yeah and they had a little bit of a fallout and so that and and it's so you need, I think they realised that I was going to structure this a little bit better. So, but he told me this story, and I knew it was going to be a gangster thing. And I thought to myself, well, if this guy's an idiot, I'm going to walk away <laughs> politely. <laughs> but he was really funny and engaging, as a lot of gangsters can be. Mm. And he's ex-gangster, <laughs> and he's actually worked on two of my films now. Oh right, okay. Yeah. So we've become good mates. Um. But yeah, he's um, he's uh, yeah, he's 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 a good guy. He's a good guy. So that was through a friend of a friend, and then the the finance one. Did they find you some another way or the finance one? Yeah, they found me another way. He's an investor in um, in uh, both of the films, and so he's kind of right. Like, I you see. Know, he's he's got back with us and backing us for a third film, which is kind of really his project. So I came on board on somebody else's project. So I'm trying to help shape shape that particular film. Um, yeah, and it's a you know lot of lot of fun. But this is what I'm doing at the moment. We kind of like going right. I've got enough 
for another few months and then mm-hmm. I might start to, you know, I might have a, uh, need to go and find a job. But do you still do the commercial work as well? Well, you, you kind of tend to find yourself doing one thing or another. I'd like to do commercials, I'd like to do, but I've never really been approached to do anything like that or, you know, I've never found a route in. Um, I, I came close at one point to doing something, but it just kind of faded away. I don't know why, you know. Um, you you end up doing one thing, don't you? You know, mm. I think that, and you always want to do. So people who are doing commercials always want to be out making feature films, and the people who are doing feature films are going. I wish I could get some more <laughs> yeah. money to, so yeah. I could go and you know. So it's true. Isn't it's it? uh, you always you know want to be doing something else, but it's a weird thing, isn't it? You, I think you only look back at your timeline over a period of years and go oh you, you can then see the connection as to where yeah. you know where where everything connects you know yeah. it's when you're doing stuff you feel like you're treading water but you are actually getting somewhere hmm. you know? and do you feel now that you know looking at what you're doing now this is you're doing the what you want to do or is it is it a case that you you know, like you say, and then people always wanted to be doing something else. Or do you feel like, right, I'm, no, I'm doing I, what I want to do? No, this is definitely what I want to do. You know, I just kind of like, you You hope that you're going to be given the chance to do it, you mm. know. Um, it's a bit strange because you kind of like have a relationship at one point with the BFI and then people change and then you lose your contacts and then other people come in and you don't have such a good relationship with them and you feel that, you know. And so... It's a bit strange. It's a constant one. I'd like to have a better relationship with the film industry, mm. you know, but uh, you kind of like, it's a bit of a weird one. I don't really know what else to do other than go and make films, win awards, and then hope that they pay some attention. Yeah. You know. Okay, I'd like to um, finish the interview by, uh, there's three questions that I've asked everyone, or almost everyone that I've yeah. spoken to. Mm. Um, so the first one is now we've touched a little bit on it with the van in terms of how you do some of the filmmaking, but mm. it's it's about whether you have. I guess this would apply more potentially to the writing, is whether you have like a routine or a, a set place where you like to do the writing or a set sort of set of circumstances that you have to things to be in place for you to do your sort of most <laughs> productive work. <laughs> Oh, I know someone who will laugh their heads off at this question. <laughs> well, I kind of like most of the time I'll just lie in bed and do right. do stuff, you know, kind of do... It, that's the only way that I can do it. And it's really difficult, actually. And having, you know, like kids and the family and everyone running around and just little things you'll be starting to do something and all of a sudden i'll get a, a t-shirt or something i'll be going oh there's a new t-, you know you just kind of like it's really difficult to write i think at home yeah occasionally i'll go out and write but i you know i only write for i've got a really short it takes me a long time to write stuff because i've got a short attention span so I'll write solidly for an hour or two, but I, I tend to write best, I think, l- late at night when everything's quiet. Mm. You know, about one in the morning, things start to quiet down, which just means, but if you start to work like that, it means that you're useless during the day, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it, generally, you know? And is that in bed then, writing in bed, or is that, no, that's... Yeah, I mean, most of the time, you know, it's, it's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? I think that most of the best, the best stuff gets done late at night. Um... You know, at the moment, I'm having to be a little bit more disciplined with the writing because I've got to get this second draft done of this this feature. Mm. Um, and there's a sprawl. It's really interesting because about going from shorts to features, I know that if you're doing short films, the and you you just assume that oh, it's going to be a lot easier to do a feature, but there's such a 
sprawling mass of a monster doing feature films. I think they're completely different. Mm. Uh, and also, I, what I realised in going to Mecca, or in a, a, which, uh, sorry, in Eaten by Lions, yeah. is that if you've got any problems in your script, when you come to shoot them, the problems are still going to be there. You know, yeah. you have to sort them out at the writing stage, otherwise you're going to be, you know, in trouble. Mm. Second question then is, and when you look back at everything now, mm. um, so this can be whether it's football mm. or when it's... Uh, the stand-up or the the film career or you know the whatever it is it doesn't it can, it can be any of those as well. What is the sort of thing that you look back on and you feel sort of most proud about? And it doesn't. This isn't about finance or it's not about you know what necessarily outside recognition, but the bit where the the uh, one incident or thing that happened that you really felt like you you know achieved or overachieved compared to what you thought you could do. There's a few things actually that stick in, and suppose they are different periods, you know, mm. and they're different things as well. That you, I mean, there was a the a, a goal I scored in the semi semi final of the youth cup, and it went to send us through, kind of like oh sorry, two one we won at home, and I got the second goal. I remember scoring and there was friends there and in the, in the in the crowd and it was you know, just sort of a really good feeling. You know, was that a, a spectacular goal or was no, it? No, it was a little poke. The keeper <laughs> just poked it past the keeper just as he was coming in. He was coming out and I just managed to get a toe to it and it trickled in. So, but it was it was just and just scoring. You know, just mm. scoring in that bit important game. That was that was a big moment. You know. Mm. Having children is a massive moment, but you know, kind of like also a massive cliche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true though. You I mean it is kind of like bizarre to just you know all of a sudden you kind of like plop the pop to a little human. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, um, this is yeah, going to be complicated for yeah. This is a game changer for Gina. <laughs> uh, uh, winning uh, some of the awards, you know, kind of like the the film awards, which you feel like is a milestone, and you kind of going, okay, you know, this is, you know, I'm a person who stood, sat in a car with a camera with my, you know, friends, and then you sat and Gary Oldman's there yeah. and a few other people, and you kind of feel like you're getting somewhere, you know what I mean, and you, and you can feel that you, there's a, a progression, and it isn't all, you know. Pointless, after all. So there, are things that stick in the mind. That one recent. That's a recent one. Um, I felt Reno actually. The, the, when we won the Virgin Media Shorts, I was really nervous and I really wanted to win that. And you know, we met John Hurt, and mm. and it was thirty thousand pounds. A big deal for us, and we didn't know. Uh, I knew nothing at all about the film. The film industry works, and I thought that, that you know, you think that this is your your moment. Mm. It's it's not. You just keep you know, it's, it's something that people who are working in the industry probably just see as something really small. And mm. you know, but for me at that time, it meant a lot. You know, I was older you think that there's no chance you know you can tap in on 40 you know yeah this is a young person's game i had people online mocking me really? what you know yeah there was like i remember people going you know what you're doing making films when you're 40 years old this is for you know a competition you know and i was yeah. like well you know 
You don't reach a certain age and go off people's love list, do you? <laughs> did you, you know? take that to heart or did you... Uh, no, I didn't take it to heart because, you know, I've never taken very much to heart, actually. I kind of like, if, uh, online, I'm constantly ribbing people. I've got a terrible online presence. I'm so, so, <laughs> so left-wing and, you know, like some, you know, I'm like swampy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all tongue-in-cheek for me, really. I mean, the kind of like politics-wise, I just kind of like I'm baffled why people don't want to help people more mm. often. I just don't, you know, kind of like all of the values that you'll teach your children. Um, I don't think that they were, you know, free enterprise and be out for yourself. Mm. I don't think they're the kind of things that you would, you know, go and you, talk, you teach your children, you know, things about compassion and sharing, and you know, and somewhere yeah. along the line it gets lost, doesn't it? Mm. So I'm baffled by by people's politics to be honest and so that's all i do is end up going online and ribbing people mercilessly <laughs> and do they come back to you or oh you? yeah yeah <laughs> i've got loads of right-wing mates and i keep them all as well because i'm going i, I want to see what they're up to I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm actually really want to see i want to understand i want to you know and it really b b boils down to just a general fear or people being afraid of other people taking work away from them or mm. something you know basic like that or they had a bad experience once so you know yeah you know it's uh, it's mind-boggling really yeah final question then yeah. um and this can be whether it's something a film that you've watched recently or you know a series that you're watching or a book that you're reading or whatever it is what are you like really into at the moment hmm I find that I get in to, I mean, the books that I kind of read are generally stuff that I'm reading about um, structure and stuff like that. I've been, I bought the master classes for various things. And when I go running, uh, I'll listen to those kind of things. And so they're really nice. Are those the ones that are like the really big names? Yeah, so Aaron Sorkin will talk yeah. about writing and, and writing scripts, and they're really interesting. Mm. I mean, they're not going to teach you, you know, that you can make connections. You go, okay, that makes sense yeah. for me. And, that, you know, and they're repeating things that you kind of like, you know, go over the basics and how they do it. I mean, you're never going to, you've got, ultimately, you've got to be your own person, haven't you? Go and do this. But I think they're really interesting to mm. listen to. Um, and uh, film-wise and TV-wise, I've been, you know, I, I like the big sprawling series. I think the, the, this is kind of like the TV in a way has caught up with film and maybe overtaken it. Mm. Because the, the story arc you can tell over 72 hours is obviously going to be much better than a story arc you can tell over an hour and a half, mm. you know. So things like the sopranos and the wire which mm. i think the wire is incredible yeah I and love the wires. yeah the well, wire. both of those but the wire particularly feels like a, a wires i think wire is groundbreaking i think the 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 the, uh, the sopranos is more accessible and mm. most people would kind of get into that a lot quicker um the wire i think was just incredible the way that it was uh way it's done and the kind of like the characterization and the, the you know I think it's I think it's a special yeah a special thing and I don't think it's ever been replicated, um, and it's difficult as well to mm. to get into. You need five episodes to get into that, and, yeah. and then you're rewarded for your time yes. and effort. Yeah. yeah. What about what about right now? Then is there something that's uh, that's you watching right now? 
no, not really. I kind of I tend not to watch TV very much at all. I did put a post on about Love Island because I I thought um, I, 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 uh, I went I, I watched something on Netflix. I watched an, uh, about twenty minutes of an, an episode of Love Island, and uh, I think my my post was the the Love Island script, which was all right, babe, all right, babe, <laughs> babe, you all right, babe, all right, babe, babe. You all right, babe? You all right, babe? You just have different tones of saying, all right, babe? Oh, all right, babe? You know, so that's basically Love Island. So I thought Have you actually right. watched it? I watched about half an hour of it, right. you know, and I saw what it was and I was like going, what? This is just bizarre. What on earth is this? Oh, babe. <laughs> this is just amazing. Uh, I, so I couldn't really. I don't. I don't even know whether I quite understand it. But you know, I think it's just basically trying to get people off of each other, isn't it? Or pretending to. I've, not, I've seen the media. Co- I've not actually watched any of it, but I've seen the media coverage of it. And yeah, I think that's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe we should do it in the hospital, so we like you know get, try and get feel like people who were ill get off with each other. <laughs> love Island in hospital. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Love hospital. <laughs> <laughs> it was the love boat, wasn't it? <laughs> there was the love boat, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so I don't know. There's nothing really that I watch at the moment, t- TV wise. Um, but I, you know, I watched a good documentary mm. about hip hop on oh, yeah. Netflix, The Defiant Ones. That was really good. I've just finished watching that myself. Yeah, that That's was amazing. really good. Yeah. I thought that was really good. I thought that was really interesting. But once again, listen to those people and how they stumbled into yeah. different things. They just keep going, you know what I mean? And they keep going and stumbling and, and you know, obviously they're really talented as well, which helps, you yes. know what I mean? But even if you're not really talented, keep going <laughs> and things will happen. Yeah. I mean, I always think I have this thing, you know, I remember when I first started talking to a friend of mine, I said, um, you know, when you, you go, oh, I'm thinking about becoming a, a, a stand-up comedian. And you wait, you know, for someone to say something. And he went, well, why don't you just do it then? And I thought, actually, that's the best advice anyone could ever give me. Yeah. Is just go and do it, you know. Because if you sit around in your bedroom doing nothing, nothing happens. But if you go and make something and you get it out there and you start to show people, things might happen. And it may not be the thing that you expect to happen, but something happens. And that, I suppose, is my philosophy. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a perfect place to finish. Yeah. Jason, thanks very much. No problem, man.